Hello, this is Patrick Neil Anthony. Welcome to my podcast, Sound in Silence. This is my first episode, and I am joined by my very good longtime friends, Jason Allen and Stephen Glude. We will be talking about Abraxas, the second studio album released by Santana. Before I begin, I must apologize up front. My microphone placement and recording techniques, unfortunately, were lessons learned during production of this episode as opposed to before production of this episode. So the sound is a little unpredictable at times and hard to hear, and I apologize for that, and I will do better in the future. Thank you for joining me. We stood before it and began to freeze inside from the exertion. We questioned the painting, berated it, made love to it, prayed to it. We called it Mother, called it Whore and Slut, called it Our Beloved, called it Abraxas. Demian by Herman Hesse. So we're set up for cameras, and it's Paul and people from the Art Institute. That's their crew. It's a bunch of students. And we got, like, three cameras set up, mine included. And the owner's going around, and he starts barking at people that if they don't have the proper badge or pass. There was one, and now it's a different one. Oh. But if you don't have this other one, right. and then then you're going to be out in 15 minutes and all this stuff. And I kind of just laid it on. I was like, I'm directing this, so whatever the pass is, I need that. But I need to focus on like what I'm doing right here. Right. And he freaked out, and he got pissed, started yelling at me. Yeah. Um, and what I said to him was, <laughs> I don't know what you're pissed about, but I'm not the source of your problems. He lost his shit. Oh, yeah, shit. no, don't you ever. He like, get the fuck out. But uh, what happened you. right after no. that was the producer, Paul, everybody got right behind me, and, and they saw the way he was treating me, and I have to give Paul credit. He was like, everybody get your shit and pack up, and we're getting out of here. Yeah. But before that, bef while they were having a rehearsal, we interviewed Junior Marvin. And they didn't have anyone to interview him and had no preparation. So they just asked me to do it. So I sat down with Junior Marvin and I started asking questions up, like, man? I was like, you know, what kind of impact would you see in the world today? What do you feel is the legacy of Bob Marley and what part of it do you feel like you're carrying on? I started doing this really good interview. Yeah. And uh, we got through that. I don't know. It was Joe's friend. Did anybody ever um, air it? Or uh, we had I had the rehearsal footage and then the interview footage went with the cameras that the students had and it was some dudes that Joe nude and so what I ended up doing was taking just the shot of them playing yeah. the rehearsal and I gave it to him to do whatever I don't know whatever came of it mm. somewhere out there is a Junior Marvin interview with the rehearsal with the rehearsal performance. Um, and then before we could actually, we were going to film the actual performance, but we got kicked out. And Junior Marvin was trying to put his arm around his walk. He was like, hey, man, you ain't got to leave. And I was like, I tried to explain. I was like, dude, Ben, I want to stay. I want, yeah. You're talking to the wrong guy. You need to go talk to this guy. Right. Go put your arm around him. Uh, you didn't get it. Yeah. Well, not everybody's going to get you, Jason. Oh, uh, well. Some people just At don't. least uh, the crew got behind me because it was just like, See you, man. <laughs>
like later. Yeah. yeah. And we'll give you a camera. But uh, yeah, we packed our shit up and left. Yeah. Oh. Everybody, the whole crew. Yeah, everybody, because of the way the suit was talking. I have to give Paul credit for that. He was yeah. like, everybody get your shit, we're getting out of here. Yeah. I read an article in Rolling Stone magazine where Jose Santana said that at school, they wanted his son Carlos to play the clarinet. Five-year-old Carlos did not want to play the clarinet, so they bought him a violin instead. Carlos Santana was born in Jalisco, Mexico, July 20, 1947. His father was a mariachi musician and was somewhat of a local celebrity in Jalisco. There is a Carlos Santana documentary on YouTube, and in the documentary, Carlos recounts his father's performances and finally remembers that people adored his father. They would approach his father after his performances, showing much admiration and respect. They adored him. This impacted young Carlos. When Carlos is eight years old, the family moves to Tijuana. In those days, young Carlos was sitting in with his father's mariachi band, playing violin and getting some early stage experience. He was also earning money to help feed the family. I read an article somewhere, I do not recall the entire story, but the article said that Carlos's dad was on a business trip to the States when he bought Carlos a guitar and then brought it back to him. I think Carlos is around 10 when this happened, and I don't know how accurate this information is, I just remember reading it somewhere. At 11 years old, Carlos starts taking guitar lessons from a local guitar player named Javier Batiz. Because of his violin playing, Carlos, Carlos already understands the fundamentals of music and takes up the guitar quickly. Also around this time, Carlos starts to drift away from the mariachi style of music that he was playing with his father's band towards the blues and, in particular, B.B. King. In the YouTube documentary that I mentioned earlier, Carlos recounts this period saying that he had trouble relating to the mariachi music. He said it's music about being drunk and betrayed, and he doesn't like music that validates feeling sorry for yourself or crying in your beer. Carlos says, I don't like victim hymns. I like victory hymns. So Carlos approaches his father and tells him that he doesn't want to play in the band anymore. And his father does not take this very well. His father says, well, what do you want to do? You want to play that pachuco rock and roll crap music? Okay, great. Take your violin and go. Just go. And Carlos is no longer in the band. Revolution Avenue was the first road to be paved in Tijuana. It's a popular destination for American tourists because it's right across the border from California. Once known as the City of Sin, after World War II, Tijuana hosted numerous bordellos and strip clubs, and Revolution Avenue was a very popular destination for American servicemen. Now no longer playing for his father's band, Carlos starts picking up gigs playing guitar with numerous rock and blues bands, and he's playing in the strip clubs on the famous Revolution Street. He would play along with the dancers as they performed. And then on Sunday mornings, he would go to church and play sacred music like Ave Maria on the violin. Carlos says that this experience taught him that spiritual and sensual are one and the same. Also around this time, while Carlos is 13 years old, he is molested for about a year and a half. 
1962, when Carlos is 15, the family moves to San Francisco. It took a little while for Carlos to adjust to San Francisco. The language was different, and the culture was different, and because he was different, he often fell victim to racism. Carlos tells a story about one afternoon going to a music shop. He was looking at the guitars in the window, and he said that most of the other boys were interested in Playboy magazine, but he was interested in looking at the guitars. He would say to himself, I wonder what she smells like. I wonder what she feels like. I wonder what she sounds like. And on this particular day, he was looking at the guitars, and a group of sailors started yelling insult to him because of his heritage. These types of racist encounters start happening quite often, and this, along with the baggage that he is carrying around from being molested in Tijuana, he starts developing a lot of anger, and he's holding it inside, and he's becoming angry. And around this time, he moves out of the house. San Francisco in the 1960s was quite a musical experience and provided quite a musical education for Carlos. The Grateful Dead were starting to take off, and music festivals were everywhere. Carlos would go to Aquatic Park and listen to the percussionists in the drum circles. He tells a story of going to a festival, and there was a blues band on one stage, a Latin band on another stage, and a mariachi band on another stage. And he said that if you stood in the right place, you could hear all the different bands playing at the same time. But it wasn't chaotic. It was beautiful. And, and Carlos loved the way the sound sounded, and, and he wanted to create something that sounded like this. Carlos also tells another story of seeing B.B. King at the Fillmore and people just adoring him and applauding for him and B.B. King just stepping back with a tear in his eye saying thank you. And this really impacted Carlos because it made him remember his father when he was younger and how people adored his father. And this really impacted him. And this is what Carlos wanted. He wanted to be adored like that. Carlos is living on the street and taking all of this in. He gets a job at TikTok's diner, peeling potatoes, washing dishes, stuff like that. One evening, the Grateful Dead come in. And Carlos says, this is when everything changed. He decided it's music and only music. He says, I must become a full-time musician, no matter what. Carlos Santana playing with Santana was like, Oh, yeah, yeah. Cl- right Santana away. is a Clive Davis sign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he went to, um, I think it was Monterey Pop Festival, where Janice okay. was playing. He was yep. the only guy out there in like a sailor sweater. Mm-hmm. You know, totally the squarest guy there. His first exposure coming out of New York, first exposure he had had yeah. to... Uh, to even like Western hippie culture. He's blown away by it. He actually loved it. He wasn't scared by it. He loved it and embraced it mm-hmm. and loved Janis Joplin. Yeah. Um, had the same feelings, of course, for Santana. So Clive Thank Davis started with uh, Columbia Records in what was it, 67? Is that when he Something like that. Yeah, he was a lawyer and um, they asked him to uh, step on over to, I guess, Columbia Records and be in charge of the musical instruments manufacturing, like guitars and pianos and stuff. Mm-hmm. He was like, I, I don't want to do that or whatever. And then the guy just made him head of the record company. <laughs> he wasn't even like into like music or musician, you know, and they made him the head of the record company. And, 
without necessarily any kind of compass for what he's doing, he just started listening to people. He knew yeah. what he liked. Yeah. You know, so he why, knew that. Why is what he liked? Why does what he liked matter? Well, because like, he's not a musician. He's just a plain dude. Right. And he, he sits down as a non musician and goes, that's good. And he just mm-hmm. had. An ear to like you gotta have you gotta give credit to somebody that listens to Janis Joplin with right. no predecessor right. coming before her that sounded like that no. and then appreciate no. that especially yeah. being a square from New York sure. you know yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what it was in him that that made him extend his appeal yeah. to the people he did because it's Janis in one moment then Whitney Houston right. and Alicia Keys right. and how another does he, how, how does he have that sense how can he like, I don't. He knows what good music is. How do you know what good you know what good music is? Neil knows what good music is. But there's been stuff that I've listened to where I'm like, that sucks, and it's huge. Huh? I think he's always. I and think he has a touch. Huge. I think there's an X factor in, in when somebody's delivering. Where yeah. you, like I remember going downstairs at Blue Sky, and first time I saw Jennifer Nettles sing. Yeah. I was like, she's gonna be a star. You yeah. know, yeah, kind of good yeah. looking, could yeah. sing her ass off. It yeah. just the delivery's right there. You're like, well, she's gonna be famous. I remember seeing Soul Miner's daughter at Eddie's attic. <laughs> yeah, John Mayer was, was the door, man. Yeah. One of my favorite comedians, Robin Williams, used to say, "If you can remember the 1960s, then you weren't there." <laughs> I was not there, but I can imagine that statement would hold true when in reference to San Francisco in the 1960s. Cheaper housing prices in the late 50s affected the population, especially the area just east of Golden Gate Park, known as Haight-Ashbury. Funny story, my wife Eve and I were in San Francisco around 2008, and we took a trolley to Haight-Ashbury. We were getting off the trolley. We had not yet taken five steps when we were approached by a gentleman offering to sell us, let's just say, some illegal substance. We politely declined and went about our way. I kid you not. We had not yet taken five steps off the trolley. Welcome to Hate ashbury right? This is by no means a historical discussion, and I am by no means a historian, but I do want to paint a picture of what's going on in the world and San Francisco around this time. As the 60s came around, the United States and the Soviet Union were in the midst of the Cold War. Also, in Southeast Asia, there was a war going on between North and South Vietnam. In April of 1961, the CIA-led Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba introduced us to the name Fidel Castro, and in 1962, the United States was dangerously close to full-out nuclear war with the Soviet Union and what we now know as the Cuban Missile Crisis. In 1963, President John F. Kennedy sends thousands of United States troops to the war in Vietnam and in November of 1963 is assassinated in Dallas, Texas, leaving Lyndon B. Johnson in the White House until 1969 when Richard Nixon takes over. In 1964, on the campus of UC Berkeley, just east of San Francisco, school administrators impose a ban of all on-campus political activity in all on-campus political organizations. Revolting against this ban, graduate student Jack Weinberg refuses to show his identification to campus police and is arrested. Protesting this arrest, thousands of UC Berkeley students surround the police car that has Jack Weinberg in it, I think for up to 32 hours, and this movement ultimately becomes the free speech movement. 
1964, a groundbreaking event happens where the Civil Rights Act is signed into law. This act outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin, and later on, sexual orientation and gender identity. I can't even begin to touch on the significance of this event. In 1965, Malcolm X is assassinated in New York City, and in 1966, actor Ronald Reagan is elected governor of California, running on the two themes to send the welfare bums back to work and to clean up the mess in UC Berkeley. Also in 1966 in San Francisco, promoter Bill Graham uh, begins booking bands at the infamous Fillmore Auditorium. In 1967, former Harvard University psychology professor Timothy Leary hosts an event at Golden Gate Park known as the Human Being, and we are introduced to the term psychedelic. Timothy Leary tells us that we need to turn on, tune in, and drop out. We need to turn on to the various levels of consciousness and the specific triggers engaging them, tune in to the world around us to externalize, materialize, and express our new internal perspectives, and drop out and detach ourselves from involuntary commitments and discover our singularity. Also around, 1960, around San Francisco in 1967, author Ken Kesey and his merry band of pranksters, including Neil Cassidy and Hustler Magazine editor Link Kornstrom, are throwing their famous acid test parties. And in the summer of 1967, we have the Summer of Love, where thousands of young people revolting against the war in Vietnam and promoting free love often holding signs saying, make love, not war, flock to San Francisco, mostly in the Haight-Ashbury district. The Haight-Ashbury district was not prepared for this. This ultimately leads to a mock funeral called the Death of the Hippie, where organizers were asking people to stop coming to San Francisco and to go home and take the revolution to where they live. In 1968, the San Francisco State Strike happens, and Reverend Martin Luther King is assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. And in 1969, the Gay Liberation Movement introduces us all to the term gay pride. And this is where our story takes place. San Francisco. The Vietnam era still. 1970. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they had, uh, I mean, Kent State happened in 1970 and that you know didn't help things as far as like the whole Vietnam era and I don't know if saying it didn't help things was the right way to put it but it was more that just showing where we were as a society at the time right um, I mean it's you know I think I can't remember when the actual quote-unquote Vietnam era ended but um, but I think that's still Sort of like 74 or 75, something like that. 75. But also that mentality is reflected in cinema at the time Godfather was coming out. Okay. And you had already had Bonnie and Clyde, you know, and the violence in that movie was right. a reflection of the footage from Vietnam that people had been seeing on the news. Mm -hmm. So, you know, media was becoming more radical, but not just in movies, but like kind of music you could make. Mm -hmm. You know, you had Advents, bands come along like Black Sabbath and stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Never would have flown in the 50s. No. As a matter of fact, Paranoid was recorded in 70. Yeah. yeah. Paranoid, so I've got a list here of albums that were recorded in 1970. Um, the same studio. Oh, okay. In the same studio is Abraxas, uh, Deja Vu. Same studio? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
And then not in the same studio, Paranoid, Bitches Brew was recorded in 70. And the same artist? Oh, yes. Oh, well, we'll, get in. we'll talk about that. Speaking of, but yes, yes, yeah. definitely, a, a, I guess, a little parallel there. Um, yes, uh, and Zeppelin Three, Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs, Live at the Leeds, The Who, uh, Band of Gypsies, After the Gold Rush, Whoa. Let It Be, which yeah. is kind wow. of interesting. Yeah. Um, American Beauty, um, I believe same same studio, mm-hmm. um, and I think the Dead actually recorded American Beauty and Working Men's Dead. Yep, that same, same year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tea for the Tillerman, Cat Stevens. Ah, uh, one of the greatest. Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Doors, Morrison Hotel. Yeah. Joni Mitchell, Ladies of the Canyon. Uh, good Just one. a few uh, of the recordings that came out that year. So mm. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, pretty important year. Music yeah. Wise. Obviously, I misspoke there. I should have said those albums were released in 1970, not recorded in 1970. My apologies. I listened to a podcast called The Music History Project. It's produced by an organization called NAM. NAM stands for National Association of Music Merchants. And they have a program called the Oral History Program, and this Oral History Program is a collection of interviews with people in the music business, uh, writers, producers, musicians. And in 2018, they did an interview with longtime Columbia Records engineer and producer Fred Catero. Catero, along with Santana, is given production credit on Abraxas. During World War II, families could go to a room and record themselves saying hello or or whatever to their sons or daughters overseas. As a young fellow, Katero got his start working for a guy that had taken this step one step further, taken this idea one step further. He, He had a piano and you could record yourself or hire someone to sing happy birthday or whatever. In other words, you can add music to your recording. Uh, They were in New York, and they were near Broadway in the area famously known as Tin Pan Alley, where there were a lot of young writers and a lot of young musicians that wanted to get themselves recorded. And they would come to Katero's studio and record themselves to try to get their start, to get their feet on the ground. Katero talks about during this time, he was working six days a week and making $18 a week. He got married when he was 16 years old and realized that making $18 a week and being married, those two were not going to go well together. So he decided he needed to to try to find something where he made a little bit more money. During the 50s, he got a job doing delay broadcasting at a place called Rock Hill Recording. So back then they had phone lines, they called them Class A phone lines, and they were sufficient for doing short distance uh, transmission, but if you wanted to do something from, say, the East Coast to the West Coast, it was going to be difficult, expensive, and just not very practical. And we also did not have satellites back then. So what they would do is they would do transcriptions of shows. They had feeds from uh, CBS, NBC, Mutual, WOR, which is a broadcasting com- company, and ABC, and they would record these. They would transcribe and record these shows. And they recorded them on vinyl. And the vinyl had... Uh, 15 minutes per side. And so these shows are about 30 minutes long and they would do two discs. They would do the the first 15 minutes on one disc, the second 15 minutes on another disc because you did not want to have to, when you're playing it back, you didn't want to have to switch it over. You just go, you know, once the first disc runs out, you you would then switch over to the second disc. 
and then they would stamp them with a play-by date. So, for instance, today is Monday. If it needs to be played next Monday, they would put that on the disc and, and ship it out, and vice versa. The West Coast, they were doing the same thing, and you know they were getting shows from, from the West Coast. Uh, pretty interesting, extremely interesting fellow, and very, very smart guy. He, he talks about uh, recording Janis Joplin and how she gave everything in the studio, and, and I think that made an impact on him. And uh, he also talks about Abraxas being a huge learning experience, and he had to come up with a lot of new techniques during the making of Abraxas, and, and I think that he was very, uh, very satisfied with the, with the outcome uh, that they had. I was probably about 13, you know, 13, 14 years old. And, um, you know, during the summer, there isn't a lot to do. And I'm going through my dad's record collection. And he had a lot of albums. And I exposed myself somehow to a lot of music because I would just go through and be like, what's this? Put it on. What's this? Put it on. You know? I, anything. And I was raised on, I mean, he came out of a folk tradition in the 50s, the Kingston Trio, that then moved into more folk, you know, into the Gordon Lightfoots and the mm -hmm. um, Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and all of that. So I grew up with a lot of that. But then, but I didn't have, there wasn't a lot of rock and roll in my early childhood. Okay. He had some Seeger, some Bob Seeger, you know, that kind of stuff that he'd put on. But then, um, so I'm just going through his record collection. I'm just putting stuff on, and I pull a Braxis, right? And I'm like, okay. So is that like the most rock and roll album that your dad had? Well, there, no, there were more, and it turned out he had some Hendrix and some Doors. Right and on. Some, so I just hadn't gotten to those, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. um, but but I pulled a Braxis, and I unfolded it, and I looked at it. It was the artwork, mm -hmm. again, that just drew me into it. And here's this this naked red angel <laughs> on the cover with their titties hanging out. You know, I'm like, like, what is this? Like, what the, what the fuck is this? And I was like, is my dad's into this like, weird shit? You know, I was like, yeah. wondering, like, what's like, my dude, dad into? Like, look at know? that, look at that foot sticking out from underneath. Yeah, like, what's going there's on? so much shit going on on that cover, on, and just... then there's the angel again coming out of the mind of the yeah indigenous growing out of you the know looks like of the yeah East African or whatever individuals are in the in the left. There's every square inch has got something going on that's got some communication yeah. of something. So the artist was uh, Mati. How do you say his last uh, name? Car Claire one? Claire one? Claire one? Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. W E I N. Doing, um, a lot of stuff. Bitches Brew. Bitches, Bitches Brew. And, and so apparently Carlos Santana saw this in a magazine. It was uh, not created for him. Right. It's called Annunciation. Yeah. I believe. Okay. The huh. painting is called Annunciation. And then he, he's like, I got to have this. Um, and I'm not really sure the whole story about how, it, how he ended up acquiring it. But yeah. He, he was like, this has got to, I've got to have this. This goes on my album. Yeah. Like, that feels like what I'm doing. But it looks right like now. an album cover. I think it's came to define so much of what, like, a lot of people's what an album cover is. Classic. Something to look at. Yeah. It's so amazing to think that it's a painting that wasn't painted as well, an album there cover. there is something to that, that you put on, when you put on an album and you are sitting there listening to it, 
you flip it over, you look at the liner notes, you look at the whatever, you open it up if it opens up, mm -hmm. you know, and what's in here, and you're reading this stuff, you're listening to mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And if I recall, it had the lyrics when you opened it up. It's not a double album, it's a single album, it's 37 minutes long or something, song, yeah, you know? Yeah. So there, were, there weren't, it wasn't a double album for sure, but it opened up, mm -hmm. you know, because they had so much to I say there. visually. Yeah, I agree. I the agree. visual aspect of it, and that's what's so... You know, that's what's so appealing about vinyl, honestly, to me. It's tactile. It's very, you know, you're very present. You put it on. That needle is turning a physical piece of, mm -hmm. you know, plastic uh, and creating this sound. And it's very present. There's a verse, like reading a book in a mm -hmm. way, but it draws you into the moment. And I don't feel that often from um, digital recordings. Well, and you made a good point, too, about it. You know, it's 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 kind of like a double album, but it's not a double album. No. And and so this is their second album. Yeah. yeah. So it costs money to make yeah. uh, the bifold. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not cheap. So I mean, Columbia definitely had to buy into that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's. Oh, you can just hear the bitching and moaning in the meetings. Want we want to do. Pounds? Yeah, we wanna you want to do this. Shoot, titties are out. It's but big. Look, at the big look how many colors titties. in it. Can't you do black and white? It's got wings, man. Come on. They're never going to sell it at Kmart. You know. After Jason and Steven left, I was curious. I wanted to learn a little bit more about the Annunciation painting. The Annunciation painting is in reference to the Annunciation of Mary, which is when the messenger angel Gabriel delivers the news to Mary that she's going to have a child. I heard Carlos say this, and I read this elsewhere, that the red angel on the, in the painting is the angel Gabriel. Gabriel is pointing up towards a Hebrew symbol, which means the beginning. Mary is the dark-colored lady in the painting. The three, I heard speculation that the three women over on the left side of the painting are supposed to represent the three kings. And I also have heard speculation that the fellow in front of the three women is Mati himself. And so, and so I put it on, you know, I looked at the album cover for a while and I was like, okay, because I was totally open. I'm a very experiential person. Mm -hmm. Give it to me. Let me just see what that is. Mm -hmm. So I just put it on. I don't. I didn't have any context. I hadn't heard any of the songs before ever, on the radio or whatever at that point, and um, and I just put it on, you know. And you have that whole um, sighing winds. Uh, the, yeah, the singing winds, singing crying beasts, crying beasts, you know. And and it, it introduces you to all of the elements that will be used in the rest of the composition because I see this album as a composition. Yeah. You know, it's not a story, it's not a rock opera, it's not whatever, but it's a composition mm -hmm. from beginning to end, mm -hmm. like a book. And each of these songs is a story of the chapter. Songwriting credits for Singing Winds, Crying Beast were given to Michael Carabello. Michael Carabello was born in 1947 in San Francisco's Mission District. He started playing percussion as a young teenager and would often take his drum to the beach to play with the uh, local percussionist in their drum circles. And in high school, he went to the same high school as Carlos and he had heard of Carlos and was interested in meeting him and, and hoped to be able to, to play with him someday. 
And he and Carlos had mutual friends. And at that point in time, Carlos's band was practicing at the house of one of his mutual friends. So Carabello went up to his friend and asked him if he could come hear Carlos's band play. And his friend said yes. So Michael went to go hear the band play. And Carlos asked him to sit in with the band. And apparently he was good enough where he impressed Carlos enough that he became part of the band and played with them as they evolved into the Santana Blues Band. There was a period of time where Carlos apparently had tuberculosis, and so he had to spend some time away from the band. And during this time, for whatever reason, Carabello kind of drifted away from the other members of the band. So when Carlos came back afterwards, Carabello was not really in the picture at that point in time, and they signed another conga player named Marcus Malone, also known as Marcus Magnificent Malone. According to David Brown and Carlos himself, Marcus Malone was very influential in helping Santana's sound evolve from the blues-based sound that they had at the time to the more African percussion-based sound that we are all familiar with today. So 1968, I don't know really the whole story. According to Marcus Malone's side of the story, the band was supposed to meet at a young lady's house one morning, and Malone was the first person to show up at the lady's house. The rest of the band members had not gotten there yet, and so when he got there, the lady asked him if he wanted some breakfast, and he said yes, and so she made him some breakfast, and he sat down to eat his breakfast. Again, according to Malone's side of the story, the girlfriend's, the girl's boyfriend shows up, and as you can imagine, you show up to your girlfriend's house in the morning, and there's a man sitting at the table eating breakfast. You put two and two together, conclusions were drawn, and an altercation broke out. Marcus Malone ended up stabbing and killing the guy. He was convicted for murder and had to go away to prison, and obviously not able to play with Santana going forward, thus opening the door for Carabello to come back and, and be the conga player. With the mainstream going in the middle of like their Taylor Swift's. Yeah, yeah. Wait, brilliant? I mean, she's smart too. Hey, man, she's responsible for every hit she has. She yeah. actually writes her own stuff. I think her stuff? next one, though, should be like, maybe it's me. Maybe. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, this next song's called Getting Off a Bumble. <laughs> singing Winds, Crying Beasts. Right, I think we covered that, yeah. man. They introduced the whole element, all the elements. Yep, yep. And then the uh, Peter Green classic. Right. Uh, Which who would even know that was Peter Green if you asked anyone who even knew that? So, I what did, no did anybody know the story? How, the, how did Santana get the song from Peter Green? Do you know? No. I do not. But huh. he is a, a great songwriter and, um, um, you know, original Fleetwood Mac, mm -hmm. um, the mm -hmm. early, early, really creative stuff. Um, he just died. Um, a year ago. Black Magic Woman transitions into Gypsy Queen. Gypsy Queen was written by Gabor Zabo, who was born in Hungary in 1936. As a child, 
Gabor saw a Roy Rogers movie. In that movie, Roy Rogers played guitar, and Gabor fell in love with everything American after that. Hungary back in those days as a result of World War II, uh, 1944, the Fourth Moscow Conference, also the Tolstoy Conference, Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin agreed that Hungary would be under the Soviet sphere of influence. It would be under Soviet control. In 1949, the Hungarian People's Republic was established, and this would have been when uh, Gabor was about 13 years old. A year later, Gabor started playing guitar when he was 14. Uh, as he got older and developed through his teen years, he, still being in love with everything American, Gabor would do whatever he could to get albums from the United States. They were illegal um, because of the Soviet influence, um, and Gabor would do whatever he could to get albums from Stan Getz and Tal Farlow and Chet Baker and people like that. Uh, 1956, the Hungarian Revolution occurred, uh, where the Hungarians revolted, and that same year, Gabor moved to California. Shortly thereafter, he started studying at Berkeley, and after Berkeley, in 1961, he started playing with Chico Hamilton's band. Uh, Chico Hamilton it, it comes up in this story quite a bit uh, because they, that was definitely in the soundtrack for uh, the, the members of Santana. Uh, Greg Raleigh talks about, about him. Um, Michael Carabello talks about him. Carlos talks about him. Definitely in their, their life soundtrack, I guess, if you will, um, in the background for them. Uh, Gabor talks about that when he first joined Chico Hamilton's band, after about three days, apparently there was another member of the band that, I guess, intimidated Gabor. And Gabor was trying to play in a style that, in which he was unfamiliar and was just not able to do that. So he was fired. A year later, he, he had an opportunity to rejoin the band. And at that point in time, Gabor made the decision that he would no longer try to fit into someone else's mold. Uh, he was going to do his own thing and, and have his own sound. And I think that's... Um, when Gabor's sound is definitely a very unique sound, and I think that was a result of that decision that he made. Um, in 1966, uh, he releases his debut, A Spellbinder, which is a recorded at the famous Van Gelder Studios, and on that debut uh, was Gypsy Queen. Carlos talks about his first time hearing Gabor Zabo. He was at a friend's house, and his friend was like, uh, hey, man, you got to hear this. It's going to blow your mind. It's going to rock your world. And, and he put on an album, and it was Gabor Zabo on guitar with a conga player and Ron Carter uh, from Miles Davis's second quintet playing bass. And uh, this moment was huge for Carlos because it, um, it around the same time, 1966, uh, going back a few years, 1964, the Beatles obviously were – huge at the time and the, the meeting of um, the Beatles and Bob Dylan in August of 1964 in New York and then after that you know with Rubber Soul in 65, Revolver in 66, Sgt. Pepper in 67, the Beatles sound uh, changed and it became I guess more Dylan-esque I guess if you will. The, the Dylan influence was was more present in their music and that was going on at the time and that was Carlos was hearing that and then around the same time of hearing the Gabor Zabo kind of really started to open up a, a different plane for Carlos. He was, up until that time, he was really influenced by B.B. King and that sound, and he continued to be influenced in that. But the Beatles, along with Gabor Zabo, really 
kind of shifted his his focus and, and opened up a completely different spectrum, sound spectrum for him. And he be- became started listening more to Wes Montgomery, Bolasete, and that, that that was that all started with with Good Boar and, and the Beatles. Man, summer of '95, I spent in Alaska. I drove F100 all the way up there, and uh, yeah, you remember this? We were roommates at the time, so I stayed in Alaska. And um, I think there was, in terms of listening to music over the speaker, there were a whole bunch of different stuff that we could listen to on the CD player, and I supplied music sometimes where we were like listening to Bad Motorfinger while manufacturing fish. But the only album um, that the Hispanics had, they didn't even have a Braxis, they just had Oyo Como Va. Oh. I think With I heard I heard Oyo Como Va about a billion times. Yeah. Uh, so it's like the only song, I'm sure they were probably now, sick of it. What are you going to do? Two chords, you know? Yeah. It's all just rhythm. Um... There you go. Back in the freeze room. Back on the salmon line. In 1981, the late, great Frank Zappa released an album called Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. On that album, there is a song called The Variations on the Carlos Santana Secret Chord Progression. The secret chord progression being a G minor to a C major chord. Back and forth, G minor to C major. So the, this is interesting because if you're in the key of G minor, usually that particular chord, that, that C major is going to be a C minor chord. So when we're talking theory, if we're talking a one chord, we're usually referring to the first chord of the scale. And then if I say the four chord, then I'm usually talking about the fourth chord of the scale. So if I'm in natural minor, then I'm going to be playing a G minor to a C minor. However, in this instance, we're playing a G minor to a C major. Oye Como Va has a similar chord progression. However, instead of starting on G minor and going to C major, the one chord in that is A minor, and the four chord is D major. So why is this the Carlos Santana secret chord progression, and why do we care? Well, I guess to begin with that is that we talk, need to understand a concept called the Dorian scale or the Dorian mode. Um, I usually refer to them as modes. So when I was learning my modes, um, I learned that, okay, the Dorian mode starts on the second tone of the major scale. So if I'm playing all the white keys on the, on the piano, I, instead of starting on C, which would be a major scale, C all the way up to C on the, on the piano, I would start on D and go all the way up to D and just play just white, key, just white keys and I'm playing Dorian minor. So great. So I learned that and I filed that in the back of my brain and never really thought about it much because it really, really didn't do a lot for me. Um, and then a, another way that you can learn it is you could think of it, uh, again, referring to the keyboard, um, so if you're looking at a keyboard and you play a note, any note to the left or right immediately touching that first note that you're starting on would be what's referred to as a half step. So if I'm playing one note on a piano and go to either the, abs- the next note down or the next note up, it doesn't matter if it's a black key or a white key, that is a half step. 
If I go two notes down or two notes up, that's referred to as a whole step. So a lot of times the way that keys and modes are explained is using a combination of those whole steps and half steps. And so I filed away in my brain the combination, the Dorian being the whole step plus a half step plus a whole step, another whole step, another whole step, a half step, and a whole step. Great. Awesome. Again, didn't do very much for me. So the what really hammered home the concept of the Dorian sound to me was understanding what makes it different. And so if I'm comparing a minor scale to a Dorian scale or mode, the difference is going to be in the sixth note of the scale. Um, so for instance, if I'm playing something in A minor, all right, so if I got a, if I'm, got my guitar and I'm playing something in A minor, I'm going to have something, maybe something similar to this. That's F. If I'm playing something in Dorian, I may have something similar to this. That's the F sharp, which is the raised sixth. That's the different note. A minor. that belong that's in the key of a minor and then Dorian with the F sharp that six right there that's the note and if you're listening to Santana music you are there's a good chance you are in the, the world of Dorian that sound is all over Santana sound and it, and it it plays a part not only melodically when I play the notes similar to the way I just played them, but it also plays a part when you think about it harmonically. And what I mean by harmonically is when I'm playing chords. Um, and so, for instance, if I'm comparing the minor to the Dorian as I did before, so I'm going to compare the A minor to the A Dorian, there's three chords that are different. Um the first chord that's different is the two chord. So for instance, if I'm playing something in minor, so if I've got a A minor, if I'm going to the two chord, and when I say the two chord, I mean the second chord of the, uh, the scale, then I'm gonna be what uh, musicians sometimes refer to as a half diminished or a minor seven flat five or a diminished triad. Um, with a, a minor seven. So that would be my two chord. So I'd have something similar to this. In Dorian, instead of a minor seven flat five, I have a minor seven. So this, which sounds good in minor, becomes this in Dorian. change being this note right here that six so the minor seven flat five to a minor seven another chord that's different 
and bringing us back around to our Carlos Santana secret chord progression is the four chord. So in minor, my four chord or the fourth chord of the scale is a minor chord. So if I have A minor to my four chord in minor, which is D minor, instead of a minor chord, it's going to be a major chord. So instead of this, I'm gonna have this. So minor. That's the F for the six to this in Dorian. And another different chord is the six chord. So I guess also stepping back and realizing that Okay, so if we're playing the sixth chord in Dorian, that means we raise the six, right? Because we raise the six in Dorian, that's correct. So if I'm playing a minor to a six in a natural minor scale, I've got a major chord on four, uh, I'm sorry, on the six. So I have something similar to this. However, in Dorian, I'm going to go to a shape similar to one that we mentioned earlier, that minor seven flat five that we mentioned earlier. So that, that Dorian sound is, um, Carlos Santana loves that Dorian sound and it's all over Santana's music. One of my favorite episodes of Sesame Street features Tito Puente playing the timbale. Oscar the Grouch, as much as he tries, cannot resist the temptation to dance and actually comes out of his trash can to dance on the street. I don't want to talk a lot about the clave, which is likened to the metronome for Latin American music, because it's such a huge topic that it actually deserves an episode all to itself. However, there is a documentary, a Tito Puente documentary, where he talks about the clave, and I just think it's interesting. He, he says the clave is just two sticks going one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. He says you don't have to be a musician to understand it. It's something that you feel. If you don't have clave, if your clave is wrong, then don't be a musician. I can't watch someone or I can't listen to someone play clave wrong. It throws me off. Tito Puente was born April 20th, 1923. He grew up on 110th Street in East Harlem in an area also known as Spanish Harlem or El Barrio. Other celebrities from that area are Tupac Shakur, the famous mob boss Frank Castellano, Al Pacino is from there, Ron Spector is from there, and Chips fame, Eric Estrada is also from there, among many others. Tito was somewhat of a child prodigy, and by the time he was 13 years old, he was already a professional. He was playing percussion in numerous bands. In 1942, when he was 19 years old, he was drafted to serve in the Navy, and while he was in service, he learned saxophone, and he began his uh, studying of arranging. This was during World War II, and after serving in nine battles, Tito was honorably discharged from the Navy.
after the war with the money that he earned with the GI Bill, he took that money and went to Juilliard and continued to study arranging, and he also studied composition. After his stint at Juilliard, he went back home to Harlem and became an arranger and started arranging for everyone. If you were in that area in the 1940s and you needed someone to do some arranging for you, Tito was your guy. In 1948, he forms his first combo. In 1958 is when Dance Mania is released, and that was uh, really, I think, his might be his biggest selling album. And by that time, if he wasn't already worldwide, that's what made him worldwide. In 1962, he releases El Rey Bravo. On El Rey Bravo, there is a cha-cha-cha called Oye Como Va. From what I understand, originally, Tito was not in love with the idea of Santana including their cover of Oye Como Va on Abraxas. Whenever he would play live, people would ask him to play that Santana song, and he was like, that's not a Santana song, that's my song that Santana covered. I believe he changed his mind on that when the royalty checks started coming in. I think many would agree that Tito Puente is the king of Latin American music. He lived an extraordinary life and was his fame extended worldwide. At President Bill Clinton's inauguration party, Tito went up to Bill Clinton and introduced himself as Tito Puente. And Bill Clinton just looked at him and said, Tito, I know who you are. What an extraordinary figure and an extraordinary musician. Tito passed away June 1st, 2000. After he passed away, 110th Street in East Harlem was renamed Tito Puente Way. So uh, the next is Incident at Nesha, Nesha Park? Yeah, so right. So what's that, like seven minutes long out of our 37? Um, it's a fairly long song. It is a pretty long song. And it has all those parts, like Rolle uh, is doing, he's doing all that organ stuff at the beginning, and then he goes into that whole piano mm-hmm. part at the end. To me, that this is the masterpiece of this album. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, um, it's the cornerstone for me. So, like, the slow part, and uh, let me confirm that here, but my understanding is that the slow part was kind of inspired by an Aretha Franklin team. And so, uh, hold on, let me see. Really? Yes, it was, I can't remember the name of the song. Um, hold on one second here. All right, yeah, so actually the first part was inspired by a Horace Silver, Horace Silver's Senior Blues, and then the slow part is Aretha Franklin's The Girls in Love With You. So are these, is this people saying that it sounds like that, or them saying that it actually was 
inspired by that. So that is what Wikipedia tells me. So however accurate Wikipedia is. Mm. <laughs> I don't I don't really know. That's just according to the Wikipedia. I mean we got the facts we got, you know. We'll do what we can. Yeah. Yeah. So Aretha Franklin. Interesting. Yeah. So but that, that song tells a whole story by itself. It's a very long chapter in this book. Um and there's there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. I don't want to break it all down, but um, but it does come down to uh, there are a lot of parts to that song, mm -hmm. and that's something that's interesting in a lot of these songs that there are that there's so many parts to the song and there's so few words. Mm -hmm. I mean, this album really has it's not a wordy album at all. Oh, you come on, nothing but choruses, you know. Black yeah. Magic 1968, B.B. King was uh, playing a concert, and the piano player did not show up. B.B. King then asked the audience if there were any piano players in the audience, and Alberto Gianquito raised his hand. B.B. invited him on stage, and apparently he impressed B.B. enough that B.B. ended up taking him on the road with him. Gianquito, and I apologize, I know I'm mispronouncing your name. My apologies to you and your family. Was born in 1943. Grew up in San Francisco, learned how to play piano um, as a young fellow, and was really into the piano stylings of Ray Charles. Um, he, at, at 23 years old, he joined the James Cotton Blues Band. Um, James Cotton played harmonica with Muddy Waters and uh, left Muddy Waters to form his own band. Um, Gianquito was friends with Carlos, is given writing credits with Carlos on Incident at Neshaber and plays piano on Incident at Neshaber. And AI Pet Sounds and, and uh, Sergeant Yeah, Brian Wilson certainly pushed things Pretty forward sure. enough. Yeah, I get the feel, though, with this album, right. so much of it really seems to be just raw live performance yeah. with a bunch of microphones set yep. up. Yep, like you could, you could literally, um, you could record this. If you had a good mix and you had everything mic'd, you could just do a stereo mix down. I, I don't feel like he overdubbed much. That Carlos Santana overdubbed much of his guitar solos. Right. It was probably as live as it could be. Maybe some overdues on the vocals or whatever. You know, yeah. Yeah, and it has that feel. That's the thing about it, you know. It has that, there's something really organic about it. Mm -hmm. Like, they were all feeling that at the same time. Yeah. You What's know? your favorite song? Uh... It's probably incident at uh, Nashabar. 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 Probably, yeah. I would say that one hits me the hardest. Yeah. Well, a little bit of backstory, and then we'll go. Maybe we'll yep. go through the tracks. Um, but so, um, Bill Graham was very influ uh, influential on Santana's development. Um, the promoter. Um, I think it was 1969. Well, it was 1969, you know, and that was Woodstock. And yep. we've all heard the whole Woodstock story about how that they were struggling to get performers and struggling with everything about the, you know, it was, I think it was a bunch of kids putting yeah. on Woodstock. Kinda, yeah. And so they called Bill Graham and they were like, help. And he's like, yeah, I'll come, I'll come help. I'll come fix it for you. I'll make it great. But you got to play my band. And that band was Santana. And, uh, you know, that's, you so know, we're all familiar. Iconic performance. Somewhere. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Soul Sacrifice, yeah. which was on their first album. Yep. And so that, that was 69. And so they 
pretty sure this is correct. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure the date of Woodstock, um, the first Santana album, was not out yet. Um, I think it came out afterwards. I, I think that's right. Okay. I, I do think that's right. Okay, so, which is very cool. They're playing this huge festival. Yeah. And they don't even have an album, an yeah. album out yet. Um, yeah. So. Uh, yeah. I don't think anybody in the audience cared. <laughs> No, I don't think they that did. Good. <laughs> well, and and so there is, um, you know, Carlos talks about. So when they got there, they went to the festival, and Bill Graham had warned them that okay, you're gonna get like you're you guys are gonna be huge, basically. Is what he's telling them. And he's like, you guys are gonna be huge, and you're gonna be you're gonna turn into a Jimi Hendrix, you're gonna turn into a Janis Joplin, you're yeah. gonna start acting like these people. Be careful, don't do that. <laughs> he was warning them, and so. They were hanging out backstage at Woodstock, and they end up taking some LSD um, because they did not think that they were going on yet. And then something happened where they had to go on at a time when they like were not originally scheduled to go on. Mm. And so the Soul Sacrifice video, Carlos is tripping. Yeah, it on happens. That, on that, which is pretty, you know, that's, yeah, to me that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's especially because it's such an iconic performance. Right. Um, and uh, so, yeah. I mean, and then they, afterwards I hope they, they didn't eat the brown after. <laughs> 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 they probably did. First, like right straight to it. <laughs> oh, check it out! It's brown. <laughs> well, Here we go. Bottom up. up. What we're up? See y'all on the other side. We're not playing for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The album went to number one. Did it really? This album okay. went to number one. Yeah, it's crazy first. to even like, think about that. It's crazy to even think about yeah. that. In 1970, when you think about how many great albums were released that year. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long it was there, but I do know it went to number one. Jose Chipito Arrea, born in 1946, uh, was from Nicaragua. Uh, he is given credit, uh, songwriting credit for Se Acabo. Uh, Michael Carabello talks about the first time meeting uh, Chipito. Uh, as, as he was uh, fondly known as. Um, and uh, Cabello was on the beach playing uh, percussion, uh, playing conga with his friend. And uh, two men walk up, and one of them was uh, handicapped and uh, asked Carabello if his other friend could play. Uh, his other friend spoke no English. Um, and so anyway, uh, Carabello First dismissed him, said, no, go away. I'm, you know, no, you cannot play. Um, and they kept doing their thing. Um, and then when they were finished playing, uh, Carabello um, put down the drum and then allowed the, the young uh, person or the, the other person to come play. And once the person started playing, Carabello talks about he immediately stopped in his tracks, dropped everything he was doing and was like, what is that? That is amazing. Uh, was completely just floored, and uh, it was just like I'm not letting that person out of my sight. That that guy that guy's got to be a part of what we're doing. Um, and as it turned out, uh, one of Carabello's friends was a nightclub owner that Chipito was going to be playing at that evening. So again, Carabello was like, I'm not letting out of my sight. Uh, I want to stick with him all day long, and I'm going to go hear him play tonight. So he did. Um, and later. Carabello talks about uh, the first four songs that uh, that Chipito played that night were on different instruments and just was complete control of the crowd, just being amazing. And so Carabello went to payphone and called Greg and Carlos and had them come down, convinced them to come down and listen to him. 
And of course, they came down and listened to him and recognized the talent and asked Chipito to come play with them. And Chipito has this funny story where he, he talks about uh, he's walking into the, the, his first time meeting the band and he's walking in. And he's got a he's dressed up. He's got a shirt and tie on and he walks in and they have uh, sho- holes in their shoes and holes in their jeans and they smell. He said they're hairy and they hadn't taken baths and um, he wasn't really sure what he was getting into. Um, but he was impressed enough by them that he decided he would play their game, if you will. And he took off his shirt and tie and tried to fit in with them. And, um, obviously was impressed enough with them to, uh, to take part in, in what they were doing and, and become a member of, of Santana. And it almost speaks, it, it, the funny thing is, even though it's got that, the Congo, the Latin, um, syncopation, Kill that, kill that. What is that? Stacy. Oh. You see the word? We'll, we'll edit this out. Yeah, better. Edit. Yeah, we'll yeah. edit this out. Hello? Neil Anthony and Stacy. Hello, Stacy. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I am doing great. I'm actually sitting here with Jason Allen and Stephen Blue. <laughs> What's up, Stacy? <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Oh shit! No, I just put you on speaker, by the way. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, hey guys. Hey. hey what's up? Right now, everybody's like right now. Our friend Trevor is calling TJ Hardy. Like people are now just calling everybody. So <laughs> like, I can call Neil. I don't know. Neil's got you. Still the yeah, PA? Yeah. yeah. So I can bring my yeah. PA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Can? Yeah. So okay. I can bring the PA. Awesome. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You're the best. Awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye. 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 Let's so, do it. Um, yeah. So we'll take a minute here. You need your board too, probably. Yeah, I'm gonna need the board and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, board, board power, PA. You're, are you have an amp for the PA or the powered speakers? I've got a powered amp. Yep. You have yeah. Powered I, amp. I have a so free amp. Yeah. yeah. So the power, the speakers aren't powered. No, but I've okay. got all the stuff. Okay. And the cables yeah. to the PA. Yeah. To the, okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right, well, yes. we'll take a minute and we'll pack all that up. That's uh, how Van Halen hooked up. Man, bring a Their System up. Blue bring and Michael Anthony. And I'll plug in, play a couple. Okay. Michael Anthony loaned the PA, and that's how Michael Anthony ended up there. What do you mean? Uh, Van Halen System Blue, the PA Blue. All right, let's tell this story. And then uh, <laughs> that's how they, they Michael, Michael Anthony, Anthony had the PA. It was a battle of the bands on top of things and mm-hmm. offered, hey, man, you use our PA. But then when Eddie saw Michael Anthony play, he was like, this guy. I want this guy. I watched it. I sent you that. Yeah. The yes, earth, yeah, the beginning of yeah. Did you watch it? I have not yet, but I will. I it's good, to. man. It's, did I send you the early Van Halen documentary? That means we have to get there just a little bit earlier. Yeah, yeah we should probably. You got 47, 48 minutes. Hey, let's stop it and no. then continue when we get home. No, 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 no. Let's finish it now. Whatever we're gonna do, let's finish it. Now. We're going okay. through the tracks, right? Hmm? We're going through the tracks. We, we have yeah. to break down his his. Board. Yeah. We have to. We're not gonna record later tonight. Yeah. No. So, uh, say Acabo, see Yeah. Is that Beautiful. is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And that has lyrics, and those are the lyrics. <laughs> like those, <laughs> the, the name of the song are the lyrics, the only lyrics that they sing, I think, in the song, mm-hmm. which is fine. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's perfect. 
Back in the 60s, there was a time when Bill Graham would allow some of the locals to come on stage and, and, and play. And Carlos uh, was one of those locals that would take advantage of, of that stage time. And after one evening of when Carlos played, one of Greg Raleigh's friends was in the audience, heard and was blown away by Carlos and went and told Greg, hey, you guys got to get together. This guy's fantastic and you would like him and you guys should play together. Uh, so Greg Raleigh, they knew that Carlos was working at TikTok at the time. And so they went and found Carlos and asked him to jam and Carlos, uh, they jammed. <laughs> and so um, anyway, they made uh, apparently made enough noise that the cops were called. And so I, when the cops got there, Greg Raleigh was uh, like, hey, man, we, we got to get out of here. And he turned around and he says, all I can see were his ass, ass and his elbows. Uh, apparently, Carlos was way ahead of him. Carlos had taken off down the street and, and was went to go hide in the tomato patch. And Greg Raleigh took off after him and hid in the same tomato patch. And that was the first time that they met. It's such a coherent whole. The thing is about this album, it is such a... It has bookends, you know. It has a, without being a cheesy rock opera or even telling yeah, right? a specific story. It's not trying. It does still tell a story, and it doesn't try too hard to yeah. tell the story. Yeah. It, it, it lays back and lets the story unfold. Mm -hmm. And even the order of the tracks, and I don't know who decided or whatever, but when you think about, um, you know, Singing Winds, Crying Beasts, how that just feeds right into Black Magic Woman. When I was sitting there as a 13-year-old kid in Summer Man, and I heard that, it drew me in. Like, it took me down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Took me down the ride, because when I heard Singing Winds, Crying Beasts, you know, I was like, okay, I'm I'm in. I'm interested. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it's Black Magic Woman, you know, and you're like, oh, this is cool. Oh, you come with that. And I'm like, wow, this feels good. Mm -hmm. And, like, it just kept... Kept, kept going. building like that. It kept drawing me in, regardless of what I thought about it. It told me like what to think about it, and um, and I liked that. I was really drawn into it, and I sat there and 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 listened to the whole album, you know, just by myself on a Tuesday afternoon or <laughs> whatever when I was thirteen years yeah, old. 13 and I turned years. I turned the album over. I didn't turn them all over. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I turned that one over because I wanted to hear the whole thing. Yeah. You know? And then the whole time, like, I, were you, did you have the album cover and you were looking at the album when uh, you were mostly, listening to it? Mostly at the um, titties. I was yeah. mostly looking at the titties, yeah, yeah, yeah honestly. Yeah. But, but the titties, like, they had wings and stuff, so it was <laughs> magical as well. Magical titties. <laughs> it was magical titties, which, <laughs> you know, at 14, I mean, your titties are enough. That's but what would have drawn me in, yeah. Are you kidding me? And they're big. Yeah, which, you know, they could be whatever size they wanted. They just, you know, I was, 14, I was 13, 14. You know. Mother's Daughter? I believe that's Greg Raleigh. Mm-hmm, yep. Singing in that, um, unbelievable. I mean, just, I mean, to me, just rock and roll. It's just... Yeah, and that's the thing. Then when you get to, to something like that, or even I Hope You're Feeling Better, mm -hmm. you know, it there there is this kind of... Um, Okay, I know where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. Like you, you, you got a little foothold mm -hmm. in reality because it it was a rock song. Mm -hmm. It was not too intense and wasn't too overwhelming or scary and some mystical. Mm -hmm. It's just like a rock song, mm -hmm. you know. And I'm, uh, I hope you're feeling better. It was the same way, mm -hmm. which kind of gave you some footing in the time period and in the comfortable rock. 
Samba Pati translates to Samba for you. In a 2008 interview for Mojo Magazine, Carlos says the following. I remember being alone one evening. Until then, when I heard my records, it was like seeing myself in the mirror, only there was no me there. Only a lot of other guitarist faces. B.B. King, George Benson, Peter Green. That evening, I heard Samba Pati on the radio, and I looked in the mirror, and it was my face. My tone, my fingerprints, my identity, my uniqueness. Because when I recorded it, I was thinking of nothing. It was just pure feeling. In that same interview, he says, Samba Pati was conceived in New York City on a Sunday evening. I opened the window and saw this man in the street. He was drunk, and he had a saxophone and a bottle of booze in his back pocket. And I kept looking at him because he was struggling with himself. He cannot make up his mind which one to put in his mouth, the saxophone or the bottle. And I immediately wrote a song. I wrote the whole thing right there. Samba Pati has Dorian written all over it, and it's just a, a beautiful piece. Itai Gura Brando, who's a bassist and guitarist based out of New York City, has a YouTube video where he explains the samba rhythm. He talks about it being in 2-4 time, two measures of two beats per measure, and each beat subdivided four times. I remember when I was first exposed to the samba rhythm, and the way that it was taught to me is you count it one ienda, two ienda, three ienda, four ienda. Okay, one ienda, two ienda, three ienda, four ienda. Itaigura suggests another way to count it out because he says that that way is too nasal and it's not percussive enough. And the way he suggests it, he tells a story that his parents told him when he was young, and his parents told him that the samba came from a fight. One person saying, I poke you, and the other person saying, don't poke me. I poke you, don't poke me. Which in Portuguese translates to chukatuka nukatuka. Chukatuka nukatuka, chukatuka nukatuka, chukatuka nukatuka. I like that way much better. And it tells you a lot about who he is everything he does from that point forward mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. because it's 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 soulful it's just it's just imbued with um, with spirit mm -hmm. and it really tells you who he is mm -hmm. who Carlos is mm -hmm. uh, you know because he he sang but he sang on his guitar mm -hmm. absolutely you know absolutely gorgeous voice when I hear that it so, all right, so going back through it a little bit structurally, all right, so you have a little melody, and then, you know, a little G, and then a little B minor, and then you have this A, or sorry, E7, it's like an E7 and an A minor. If I would have written this piece, I would have continued the melody there. I would have messed up. Carlos does not continue the melody. He just plays the, just lets the chords just ring out. He plays the perfect amount of notes. Right. To me, that's a, that's a lesson in songwriting. Yes. Because again, if I would have written this piece, I would have I would have put too many notes in there. So as a as a musician, the, it's something that people don't understand. 
as a musician, it's not about you. Mm -hmm. It's about the song. Mm -hmm. We serve the song. Mm -hmm. And the song is the boss. That's very true. And you do what the song tells you to do. And as soon as you start fucking noodling off and doing all this stuff that doesn't belong there, it's not appropriate for the song, you're not serving the song, you're serving yourself. Right. You know? Every song is, you're not the one that wrote that song. You're just the one that's lucky it enough to grab to, it out of yep. the cosmos before yep. somebody else does. Yeah. And you're, yeah, you're right. You have a duty. You have a duty. Every song kind of yeah. writes itself. Yeah. Uh, came up with a melody this week that, that wrote itself. It right. dictated to me what needed right. to come next. Right. I would have been deserving that if yeah. I had not done what it was supposed to do. Yeah. So you're right. Uh, the, you're just grabbing a song that already exists. Yeah. You're just the one lucky enough to, to grab it first. Right. Yeah, that's the lucky of my lucky check of boom, honestly. Yeah. You that's know, good point. I'm just lucky enough to, 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 to get these songs. I, I listen to Elton John, and you'd be like, and I have the same feeling sometimes. So you hear somebody's song, and you're like, I wish that was my song. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Wish I, I did that. that. I wish that was my, sign my name ego. to that song. And I want that song. Have, he served the song, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. You know? Yeah. But he also realized that when you talk about a song, you're just lucky enough to be the one to grab it first for somebody else. You know, I wish that was my song. I understand that. Yeah. They just got to it before you. Yeah. you know? All I know is that as a songwriter is if I, I can't force it, I can't, um, I can't just sit down and say, I'm going to write a song. You know, and if I do, it's, it's not a great song. Yeah. I know enough, though, when I feel a song coming on to get out of the way. And let it like try and create a little space mm-hmm. for it to happen. Because like, you're listening to it this, like it's already on the radio. You're listening to it like it's already something I, uh, on the radio. Yeah. Like this already exists. What is this? It. What happens now? Yes. If I'm listening on the radio, what happens now? Unfortunately, I don't know a lot about David Brown. He was born in 1947, just south of San Francisco. There's a story that I read that he was walking along North Beach and heard music coming from inside a club and went inside the club, and it was Santana's band. And uh, Stan Markham, the manager at the time, met David. I don't know how it happened, but he ended up playing bass with them and became the bass player. I don't really know very much more than that. Um, unfortunately, I, I wish there was more information. I think, it, from my perspective, he's just as integral as any member of that band. His, his bass lines are, are the perfect element to the, the rhythm section. Um, and in the 1998 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, when Santana became members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, Chapito was not there, but the members that were there, all the members spoke except David. Uh, Where are we going? Hope you're feeling better. Well, sure. So this is classic um, blues psychedelia, San Francisco Mm -hmm. rock psychedelia, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those moments that is very comfortable. Mm -hmm. In an album that can be chaotic and can be um, discombobulating, it's like one of those moments that just hits right on the floor Mm -hmm. and it's like really easy to bob along with. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. You know? And it gives it legs. It gives the whole album legs because you get a moment of, of um, stability mm-hmm. before you go off again, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first time I heard it, it just, I mean, it just psyched me up. I, I 
I was, I think I told the story earlier, I was at band practice and we were finishing up and my friend Andrew put it on and played it. And I was just like, yes. I mean, I was fired up. Yeah. It was just blew me away. And it was the second Santana song that I heard. So you and played that with a, a band you were in? I didn't play it. He just That's played like, it. Oh. Like he played a recording of it. Uh-huh. And it was just like, I mean, just blew me away. Mm-hmm. It's like, I love this song, love this band. And then, you know, yeah, here we are today. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the last track, El Nicoya, kind of finishes off. Um, the, to me, it kind of bookends. I think, as you mentioned earlier, the the singing winds, crying beast. Yeah. Opening. Yeah, yeah. You revisit some of those elements um, in a mellow way again. And some people, some people say, "Oh, it's a letdown. Like this should have ended more triumphantly or more intensely or whatever." I think, but. To me, it kind of just closes everything down, yep. kind of brings all those elements back together, puts them back in the bag, ties it up with a nice, pretty ribbon. And put the mint on the pillow. Put the mint on the pillow. <laughs> go hit the hot tub. In Mike Shreve's 1998 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame speech, he talks about being 16 years old. And there was um, a performance at the... Fillmore with Stephen Stills, Al Cooper, and Mike Bloomfield. And uh, Shreve asked his friends if they would like to go with him to see if they could possibly sit in. And his friends said, that's simply not going to happen. They're not going to let you sit in. But determined, Shreve asked his father if he could borrow the keys of the car. His father said yes, and he went to the Fillmore. Uh, When there, he went up to Mike Bloomfield and asked him if he could sit in. And Mike Bloomfield said, uh, you know, the Sure, drummer, the drummer's a nice guy. Uh, let's ask him. And so they asked the drummer, and sure enough, he was able to sit in. Um, after the performance, uh, Shreve went backstage, and that's where he met uh, Santana's original uh, manager or manager at the time, Stan Markham, and their bass player, David Brown. And they struck up a conversation. Um, Shreve, who had apparently had some jazz chops, um, he grew up listening to Max Roach and Tony Williams, among others, and um, apparently impressed Markham and David Brown enough where they asked him for his number and, and said that they were, you know, possibly interested in, in looking for another drummer. Um, they never called him. Um, and then uh, at least a year later, Shreve was walking into a studio for a completely different uh, situation. And out of the studio comes Santana's original drummer at that time. And um, apparently they had a falling out. And as Shreve continued on into the studio, he comes across Markham and David Brown. And they had remembered each other from that night at the Fillmore. And they struck up a conversation. And they ended up asking Shreve if he would like to sit in and play with them. And uh, he impressed the band enough that they asked him if he wanted to join the band. And Shreve's reply was, uh, hmm, let me check my calendar. Um, Obviously, his calendar was empty because he accepted the offer. And he talks about going home that night and waking up his parents and saying goodbye, um, telling him that he loved them and goodbye and packing up his things. And next thing you know, he's he's sleeping on the couch at the Santana house. He's the drummer. Um, And he he talks about uh, just the way the group looked, um, the, the... First of all, it talks about how serious they were, um, and he said that they were they were like a gang, um, and and their their weapon was music. 
Um, and he talks about the, the, the way that the group looked and how just they looked so much different from the, from the other groups. Um, they had an African-American, uh, which obviously was David Brown, and, and a Mexican, Carlos, um, a Puerto Rican, Carabello, Nicaraguan, obviously Chapito, and then the two white guys from the suburbs, uh, Shreve and Raleigh. And um, there, there's a quote on um, his website from Carlos, and the quote says, I owe Michael a lot. He's the one who turned me on to John Coltrane and Miles Davis. I just wanted to play the blues um, until Michael came. Well, thank you guys. I can't, um, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Yeah, this thank has been good. For, for uh, this is our first go at this. So here's to many more. Here's to many more. So, uh, yeah, introduce yourself. Just yeah. say. I'm Jason Allen. I'm friend Niels, a musician, filmmaker. Um, and over here we have Stephen Glude. I'm Stephen Glude. Um, longtime friend, longtime music advocate, um, servant of the song. Tell us about Lucky Chuck a Boom a little bit, man. If you got a few minutes. Yeah. So, so Lucky Chuck a Boom came about as. Um, as a result of me finally reaching out and finding someone who um, played like I do, I found a dude who plays bass like I play guitar, you know, and I've just never had that before. And the two of us just play off each other. He just gets, I'm pulling out songs I wrote 20 years ago, more than that. Nice. And, nice. and they have new life. They have like new, I was like, yeah, it's a pretty good song, you know, I'm not exactly sure how it, if it works mm -hmm. and he comes in on it and together we just have this um yeah and then rob is such a natural adjunct to yeah, that rob could do anything you know rob the drummer could, rob rob albertson and then ryan so rob albertson ryan's you know, the icing yeah yeah so rob ryan's albertson has played you know he's really a jazz drummer okay and um he's got this 19 this 60s sparkle kit with these nice. gorgeous, yeah. like, hand... Hot chick on the bass drum. Yeah, yeah he's with <laughs> these hand-hammered cymbals that were hand-hammered in Istanbul. And, like, he's got this great kit. And he played with um, Atlanta Jazz Cats. He played with... He's played around Atlanta for years with jazz trios. He, when he grew up in Miami, he was playing on, like, um, uh, cruise ships. Mm -hmm. You know? We had a band for a while last summer. I was the bass player with him. And yep. it's the first time I'd been a bass player and... You know, played that role in a band, but understand what it is. There is a synchronicity between the bass player and the drummer. They are a team, in a way, separate from the rest of the band. I got mm -hmm. to have that experience with this guy. We really played well together. Nice. And had some incredible musical moments last summer, you know, while it lasted. Yep. But, yeah, uh, no offense to you. <laughs> no, it's essentially because Lucky Chuck a Boom <laughs> is the same band. Just without me and and, well, yeah, and another and, member. And our that that thing that we were doing was not necessarily my band. We had a band. Yeah, it was a uh, yeah. Yeah. Whereas this is, I mean, honestly, His it's it's my band. Which ought to be. Which is okay. We're all because he I've I've heard but these songs Steven for years the on the front porch. We're not Stephen and the Stephenettes. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, Stephen it's and the Stephenettes. Like, yeah. These people contribute as much as I do. <laughs> it's just that they're they are my songs. But um, it's also, like I saw about Ryan as a guitar player, you, you offer such a great vehicle for him to cut right. loose on. Yeah. He's yeah. loving it, man. He's like a dog in the dog park. Exactly. Off the nice leash stuff. when you let him go on a yeah. song. He's, he, he's really calculated, knows what he's doing. 
but he, you can tell he's having the time of his life. Yeah, you know. Nice. Yeah, and that's nice for um, for the drummer too, for Rob Albertson, that that um, because I have a very percussive style, mm -hmm. the way I play the songs I write, and then to have that slap bass, that stand up bass, is just perfect. And when Brad and I lock in on the rhythm on a song, even the drummer can have fun. He doesn't have to hold down the beat. Mm. He can be doing all kinds of stuff. And he was pulling out mallets and he's doing Yeah, because there's enough stuff. percussion coming from you just strumming exactly. and him playing stand-up yeah. bass. Because we're both so percussive. Yeah. That even Rob can, as a jazz drummer, it's cool mm. because then he can do a lot of interesting things and not just be holding down the rhythm. And then Ryan's just got like the gravy. Mm -hmm. he he's very similar to Dwayne Allman. You know what I mean? like he's he he's like space. having Dwayne Allman in the band. He's he's really got it. Like he's a southern virtuoso. He is really he's really talented. I mean, people, guitarists will come to our shows just to watch him, regardless yeah. of what we're doing, because he's that. How old is he? Like thirty-three. Yeah, he's young. Yeah, yeah young yeah. dude. So that um the 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 rhythmic style in your playing that you're referring to, maybe that. Has roots back in the thirteen-year-old Stephen Glee. Well, it does, and um, Straight Cats, and um, like I was real big into. Um, but for me, it represents like your upbringing with Gordon Lightfoot and oh, stuff. Is this Stacy? Hey, Stacy. Hey, buddy. Hey. Yeah. No, no. If they've got a PA, then that's great. Okay. Fantastic. You're welcome. Okay. Bye. Awesome, so we don't have to... Yeah, that's, that makes things easier. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping that was the next call. But we were there in case we needed to be there. That's right. Yeah, so yeah. I'm glad we, we have to move a bunch of stuff. God. I'm not in gear-moving you know, mode. Honestly, as a, you know, as a band, the easy part's playing. Yeah. There's a lot of work. Yeah, that's what Jimmy from Gurufish, what he tells me, is like I dream of the day where I just walk out on stage yeah. and it's just set up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somebody yeah. else has done it. Yeah. Sit Even down, play. That. Is uh, I mean, doing a wedding and stuff like that. I mean, it's a lot. I mean, a band, I mean, it's like yeah. that times five, you know, but just like just doing like a solo guitar performance. Just all the cabling, mm -hmm. all the mic stands. Well, you've mics, been um, the, you know, field tested. You know, yeah. you can fit your stuff on top of a dock. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, you've got, yeah. you've got at least that kind of. Yeah, I posted, you'll have to see it. I posted a video from the dock today. Nice. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. Fun. Good stuff. Well, thank you guys again um, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. You're welcome, man. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Yeah. Right what on. are we going to talk about next time? Because honestly, okay, wait. Let me do one little piece yeah, yeah, here yeah. just real quick. Yeah. So let me just finish this story. Because 13-year-old me listening to this album and reading the bifold panels in the back and the front and the whatever um, was was affected I was affected you know like that did something to me at that moment because it was something I had no idea existed you know I had no idea this sound existed and um, and it kind of you know it hit hard not just the titties on the album cover or whatever, but like listening to it, you know, it hit really hard. And then there was that Hesse quote on the back, right? Mm -hmm. And so, who's this? Who's Herman Hesse? 
And so that led to, you know, reading Dimian and reading Siddhartha and reading Narcissus and Goldman and reading the glass bead game. Very heady stuff, you know, but it took me into um, young, uh, it took me into um, psychoanalysts in general, you know, in archetypes and um, and all of that. And I think that actually that moment might have been part of a, a springboard in that sense for me, like spiritually, that I got into Hesse and got into Jung and got into archetypes and got into huh. Tibetan Buddhism. It's all archetypes and like all this stuff that I, it was a moment. That's why, because it created a whole new landscape of yeah. thought. Yeah, it, it was a it was a divergent path right there. And that is interesting because you talked about this whole idea of a land new landscape of thought. It's right there in the painting. Yeah. You know. Right. It is my it is mind expanding. Yeah. Not a lot of albums are truly mind expanding. Mm -hmm. This it one. Blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yes. Thank you. Cheers. Tune in next time. Another influence for Carlos and the other members of the band at the time was Babatude Alatunji. Alatunji was a Nigerian drummer. He signed with Columbia Records in 1957. He recorded with many people, Cannonball Adderley, Horace Silver, Stevie Wonder, Pee Wee Ellis, Max Roach, among many others. He was also close friends with John Coltrane. Together, they formed the Center for African Culture in Harlem, which turned out to be the site of Coltrane's final recorded performance. On Coltrane's Coltrane album, released in 1962, there was a piece on it called Tunji, which was written and dedicated to Alatunji. In 1960, Alatunji and his group released Drums of Passion. I actually have it right here in front of me, and that's what it is. It's drums, percussion, vocals. I love this album. I treasure this album. It completely takes you out of this world when you listen to it. On this album, there is a piece called Jingo Loba, which Santana actually did a cover of and, and put it on their first album called, and called it Jingo. In 1961, uh, Alatunji did the soundtrack for Columbia Pictures' Raisin in the Sun with Sidney Poitier. Alatunji was definitely another influence on Carlos and the other members of the band at the time. Sound and Silence, Episode 1. This is Patrick Neil Anthony. Thank you for listening.